Hey, everybody, welcome back to another edition of DPH Clinical with your two favorite guests that have ever been on this podcast and two of my favorite people, Dr. Dan Brisky and Dr. Tahir Dune. Just magical, magical people. They just released a swimsuit calendar that's coming up for 2024. <laughs> you guys can get that at Colorado Surgical Institute. And Tahir, that American flag spread, baby. Oh. Wow. Wow. Just the spread in itself, man. (laughs) It's great. He even wore an eye patch during it, too. It was pretty cool. It was a monocle, like the Monopoly guy. What was his name? Did he have a name? I don't know. I don't think so. I just remember Ace Ventura Pet Detective, like when he knocked that Monopoly guy out and wore him on his shoulder. I don't know. That movie, just old school classic Jim Carrey. Yeah, right. That's funny. It's funny, like whenever my kids watch a movie that I thought was funny when I was younger, it's like, they're like, this is awful. Sometimes I watch and I'm like, it is awful. What was up with like the writing and the Uh dialogue back then? It seems so simple. I just, now it's like, it was like a movie. It was like, this is writing for a movie. This is how we write and talk in movies. And now it's like all the movies, it's like supposed to be like real life now. It makes all those old like 90s things seem weird. I almost don't want to watch movies from back in my childhood because I have like these fond memories of them and I don't want to ruin them. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want to rewatch The Sandlot because The Sandlot was such a good movie <sighs> yes. when I was growing up. Yeah. Oh, I guess. A basketball? Basketball is <laughs> one of my favorites back in the day. My favorite thing in basketball was uh, the guy like, uh, what they call him? Little bitch. Squeak? Squeak, yeah. Squeak? Yeah. <laughs> I, swear God, I swear to God, you call me Little Bitch five or six more times, I'm moving out. <laughs> poor squeak anyway poor squeak i know so here what's your favorite movie from back in the day you said sandlot is you got a different oh so like old school like kid classic movie or like any type of thing i guess either shawshank redemption was always classic and andy that's more like adult drama type of shit every day andy um, defraid would walk the yard (laughs) (laughs) it's a pretty good morgan freeman man (laughs) thanks i loved labyrinth with david bowie Oh, dude, I haven't seen that. It sucks. It's a horrible movie. I watched it with my kids. (laughs) It's just like, did anyone like develop a story structure here? It's awful. Or you just put David Bowie in the movie and let him carry it. He did carry it. I remember being kidding. He is so cool. I want to wear makeup and tight pants. Man. (laughs) What are we talking about today? What's the good stuff? I'm going to pass it to Brisky. I feel like I always go to you first to hear. Brisky's going to contribute, man. So we're going to chat about some of the complications that we've been seeing over our single implant courses. So we reached the three-month period where all the complications that would have happened or implants that have failed would have failed by now. (laughs) So we like to draw some conclusions on what are some of the top mistakes that we're seeing in terms of placements or reason why implants are failing and our own private practices and some of the doctors that we talk to on a daily basis and from all the students that go through all of our courses. It's interesting. All my implant cases that have failed, I'm not sure why. It's always been just a random. Unless, like, from talking to you guys, the uh, whole thing mm-hmm. with the SSRIs, I should go back and look and see if that was a factor. But it was always like, oh, that thing's tight as can be. It's great. Torque's great. Looks good. Nope. It's gone. Fail. Fail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it always worked the second time. The second one always worked. Always. Well, that's good. Always. Okay. Yeah. Always. Every time. Every time. 60% of the time, it works every time. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something like that. Something like that. What complications we talk about? What have you seen? One of the biggest ones I saw this last course was actually putting too short of healing abutments on implants. You think it'd be such a common thing, but it's not. So when you're placing implants, a lot of implants are either placed at the crest or below the bone. 
So if you have an implant with an internal hex connection, you usually place the implant even with the bone or one millimeter below the bone. But a lot of implants are now placed below the bone. So something with a deep conical connection like a Neodent or Megagen or 10 other brands out there, you have to place it at least one to two below the bone and you'll have excellent bone maintenance. But in doing so, if you place it below the bone, now what if, do you have a tall enough healing abutment where the healing abutment is going to be above the tissue after you suture it? So we're seeing a little bit of like a little bit of swelling and then boom, the tissue pops above the healing abutment and the patient gets bacteria trapped underneath the healing abutment. And then you get periimplantitis and you lose the implant. I saw that actually a few times this time. One of our last courses, we placed almost 120 implants. I do like a quality control. So I check, I count all the implants we place, and then I can make a big list of any failures that happen. Like who was in the room, what the doctor was, who the mentor was, who the patient was. But then we start making reasons and judgments for why that implant failed, because you need to know and you need to have good quality control. I do that in my own private practice, and I encourage everyone else to do the same thing as me. I actually found three implants from my post-ops were just failures from periimplantitis from food getting stuck around the healing abutment. Hmm. I was like, wow, interesting. Well, let me ask you this about this. So you're saying a tall healing abutment. Are you saying it's like we never intended for the tissue to heal over the top of it and it heals over the top of it? Is that what we're saying? Yeah, so it'll look pretty, and when you suture it on the day of surgery, the healing butt may be a millimeter below the adjacent soft tissue, but then when you get a little bit of swelling, and maybe the sutures aren't perfect, the soft tissue increases and it swells, and then the suture incision line will open just a little bit, and then the tissue ends up over the top of the healing abutment, like 50% of the healing abutment. And then at that point, patient gets food trapped, then all this bad bacteria gets trapped and the patient loses the implant. So I've always thought that was an interesting one. So your solution you is think it'd be taller so simple, healing right? abutment or cover screw, I guess. Taller healing abutment or cover screw. I would agree 100%. Yep. I would say taller healing abutment because I don't like placing cover screws. And two, like your implant manufacturer, whether it's Neogen or anyone, if you place an order, you should try to ask them for free product. And some of the free product could be healing abutments. It never hurts to ask. It depends on how much you buy. You can't buy one implant and get like a bunch of like free healing abutments. But at the end of the day, it's always worth an ask. And so if you have a stock of healing abutments, don't reuse your healing abutments, mm-hmm. right? That's a thing of the past, right? I don't do that anymore. Use new healing abutments on patients, but stock different various sites for the protocols that are changing and how we're placing them. Yeah, I had to go buy a bunch of healing abutments because of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, man. I've been like recycling the same like 12 of them <laughs> in the past. No, I haven't. Like no, I'm just kidding. I, I knew, knew healing abutment every patient. Totally. Yeah. I also saw from this last course three implants that failed from patients chewing on it, actually. So a patient would come back. Things would look good at week six. Then at week eight or week 10, I noticed that the gingiva around the implant was like white and firm. So you could tell that they've been chewing on the ridge itself. You know, the kind of like fibrous look that tissue will get if you chew on the ridge. It looks like that, but then they'll using the healing abutment as a fulcrum to chew against. So then you get a late stage failure at like week eight or week 10, mm-hmm. which I thought was very interesting too. Yeah. Do you guys talk to your patients about that? Not to chew on it? I just figured like life would just take care of itself. It would be sore and they wouldn't do it. And they, I mean, I can't imagine what does it feel like to chew on that? It can't feel good. I mean, unless it's a giant, like an eight millimeter healing abutment wide. Can you do with that? Mm-hmm. Why do they do that? Yep. What's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah. People will be people, but it's nuts 
you know, my line with patients is like, hey, I'm going to tell you a lot of stuff you already know, but I've been doing this long enough to know that, hey, I got to tell everyone these things. And then I preface it when I tell them really very simple things. Like it's almost like I'm insulting their intelligence, Mm -hmm. but I tell everyone like the same things. We go over like foods to eat and like scrambled eggs is good. Pasta, good. Fish, good. We kind of go through it all. Like, and I really dial in every little detail for them. Because if you don't say it, they're going to do it. Or one out of like 20 will do it. So 2% of the population will make a catastrophic mistake. Oh, you didn't say I had to take antibiotics. I was like, well, you know what I mean? So you just, you got to talk about everything with these guys. Yeah. So what else have you been seeing, Brisky? Uh, Dune, you got one? Yeah. For me, it's like just the prosthetics on full arch. When people come in, they're like in quite a bit of pain. Again, this is just more like on coaching calls I'll do with our alumni after they go home. Oftentimes, the patient will come in, they'll be in immense pain after the surgery. And then the dentist is worried about it. If you don't have a lot of reps, you're worried that your full arch patient's in significant pain right after the surgery. Well, typically speaking, there's too much tissue compression under the prosthetic. And all you have to do is look at underneath it. And we don't want to keep taking the prosthetic off and on. But in this scenario, hey, take it off and look at the tissue and see where it's over compressed. See where the tissue, there's a lot of like just, it's either like bright red or it's white and like necrotic looking because it's overly compressed. But then you can start to take a burr to the underside of your prosthetic and create space for the edema and the swelling to go into. And it's an immense sense of relief. And then you're almost going to like, hey, take it out and the patient will feel immediate relief. And then you can understand like, hey, this is something that's very easy to fix. Usually I'm not concerned if I have a patient in that situation. And then sometimes they're so sensitive, you can't even touch it to get it out. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Ty here doing Colorado Surgical Institute. Dr. Brisky and myself have really enjoyed doing these podcasts with Dr. Etch and talking about everything clinical. So keep your guys' feedback coming. It really helps us curate what we're going to be talking about on the podcast. If you want to learn how to do live patient surgeries and actually do the work yourself with the guidance of Dr. Brisky and myself, come out and see us. We're in Northern Colorado. We're just north of Denver, and we can have you do anything from single implants to wisdom teeth to IV sedation to oral sedation, bone blocks and GBR and sinus lifts, vertical and lateral and full arch with the whole digital workflow using photogametry, 3D printers, mills, and all of the above. So we're here to help. Reach out to us. You can call Chris Richards, our director, at 970-420-6148, and he will definitely have a hero discount for you guys because we love Paul and we love DPH. I'll share my greatest implant complication, I guess it would be. I was doing two implants on 12 and 13. And both three and a half, like the smallest diameter there was, there wasn't a lot of room there. I didn't make a guide. I'd made nothing at all. And I just went and I placed, what did I place first? I placed number 12 first. And I put it a little bit too much distal, not too far distal, not crazy. But it wasn't until I screwed all the way in that I realized that I didn't leave myself a lot of room for 13. And instead of doing probably would have been the right thing to take it out and redo it. I squeezed it in there. So I had two implants very close together, but then I had a pretty far gap between 11 and 12. So to restore that and make it look cosmetically acceptable was kind of a challenge because my 12 was massive and my 13 was very small. And I ended up building up and doing like a big buildup off of the distal of 11 to make it look good. 
It looked great. It worked. I still see it. It looks great. It's functional. But now when I do that, I actually take a model and I make a little Essex such down and I put two little holes in it where I want to put my implants because I think what I didn't realize was that one millimeter off when you're doing two teeth can be really challenging when you don't have those spacing right. I'm not sure what you guys do in that situation, but. Okay. Essentially, it's just the prosthetic is on too tight and you got to relieve it and it's not a big issue. So as long as it's not a big issue to you, it's not a big issue to the patient and they're totally cool. I like your Essex idea, though. It kind of gets into the debate of like, okay, guided versus not guided. Right. And I'm still a freehand guy, but I think what we're going to be instituting in the practice, because I have associates now and we're all doing surgery, is a pilot guide. If there's tooth supported stops for just singles and doubles and triples, but just on the pilot only. And I think there's a lot of like logic in doing that as well. So I think we're going to be implementing that as basically your Essex approach to it. Yeah, I like the pilot guides too. I'd be lying if I said I didn't use pilot guides. I mean, I don't use them very often, but if I use a guide, it's usually a pilot. But I'm just doing singles. I'm not like doing anything crazy like you guys and your zygos and all that stuff. Yeah, and I'm not a huge fan of full arch guides, but I mean, I, that's a conversation for another day. Anyone have like any nerve issues and how they handled like nerve complications at all? At one of our wisdom tooth courses, I had a really good look at the IAN and thank God everything was fine and we didn't have any paresthesias or dysthesias. But yeah, Paul, did you have something going on? I've never had anything that hasn't resolved on its own, but I'm not doing what you guys are doing. I'm not doing third molars or anything like that. So like when I've had it, it's probably been, it's like when you give that block and they feel the jolt in their tongue, and you know, you stabbed, mm-hmm. you stabbed the lingual and then it goes away. It always has. But yeah, I'm interested. I've never, I don't want to touch the mental. I don't, I'm not a surgical guy. I just try to fake it for the show. <laughs> well, dude, you, you fake it really, really well. <laughs> <laughs> Brisky, what's your worst nerve story? You got one? Worst nerve story? Ooh. Luckily, knock on wood, I actually have still yet to have a paresthesia case, which I think is pretty surprising with how many thousands and thousands of implants we've done now. <laughs> but I've had some that have stuck around for four months and then have barely improved. Those are definitely very, very scary. But I think it's important to remember that if you're not inside the nerve itself or you didn't cause nerve damage physically, it's a pretty low chance for something to, to stick around long term, right? Yeah. Obviously, we have some cases of neurotoxicity that can happen with our septo or things like that. And obviously, a round of steroids or medral dose pack is going to be warranted in those circumstances. But unless you're taking a burr and you're drilling into the IAN, the chances of <laughs> you getting a persistent case of paresthesia is very slim. Very slim. Or one yeah. that doesn't get better. I think the research, when you look at it, it was stated 0.1% of the time you get something that will become persistent. Then of that amount, it's like 0.01%. You actually get it. That will be something that's like long term. I mean, like we're counting like pennies mm-hmm. at this point, right? Yeah. And when you're doing a full arch, when you have to like reflect out the mental in these atrophic cases, I tell every patient that I know I'm going to be working down around the mental and reflecting out and visualizing it, that they're going to be numb in the chin area. I'm just like, hey, it comes back. It takes a couple of months. It just, when you tap on it, it's going to just feel off. It's not going to hurt. Nothing's going to be bad. But I kind of preface those cases because it happens enough when you just even stretch the mental that that area just gets some paresthesia in it. But we haven't had anyone that actually had something that was persistent more than several months in that area. But yeah, I think Brisky's right. Just some decks, measure all those pack if you want to. 
and just reassurance. That's really what the patient is looking for, that you're not like losing your shit on it and worried. And if you're not worried, it's like when my anesthesiologist is in the room, if he's not worried and the patient's desatting, I'm not worried. They got it under control. When I see him start to hustle, I'm like, all right, man, what do you need? Call it out. I'm here to help. You know what I want to know? Because we're just kind of free riffing on this one. How stretchy is the mental and how much can you stretch it before it rips? Not that you've ever, (laughs) I'm thinking like cadaver, like, okay, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to take an endo file and I would drive it in an extracted tooth as hard as I could to see how much you could drive it before it break. I wanted to know, like, not in a patient's Mm -hmm. mouth. I'm just wondering if you've ever done that on a cadaver or if you've ever had an experience where you're reflectant and you're like, oh, no. And then you're trying to like, I like stick it back together. And <laughs> I haven't ever been in a situation where I've like stretched it to its max because I've never done a cadaver course. But I have like moved the mental over. And so essentially I just distalized the mental nerve just by like troughing outside the foramen, kind of pushing it backwards. So it can move it and it's stretchy. It's like, you can stretch on it, you can pull on it, but here's the thing. Do not do it unless it's a cadaver. So you have the experience if you want, but sometimes you compress it with your Minnesota and you can have a paresthesia. Other times you stretch on it and you're like, whoa, why did you blunt dissect the whole thing out? And then there's no paresthesia. So everyone is different. How they tolerate it is different. It's elastic and and how you kind of pull on it. You trough from the mental foramen and you slide it distal to get it out of the way so you can place an implant. Correct. You can do that. That's wild. It's not anything you necessarily want to be doing, but it's possible to do it. No. And we're not here talking about nerve repositioning or doing any of that craziness. Yeah. How many episodes do you think we would have to do so somebody could be comfortable to go try this on their patient today? Zero. (laughs) (laughs) Don't try it. Not advised. What if we need like a disclaimer at the beginning of these? Yeah. Okay. Let's consider this our legal disclaimer. Yeah. For all the podcasts and all future. We are not advising nerve repositioning for anyone listening to this. Yeah. We are not here for professional advice. We're just here for entertainment. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That's what I'm here for, at least. (laughs) We are strictly here for entertainment. I like that. All right. Let's hear what's happening in year 2024. What's, I mean, where this is going to be releasing right at the end of the 2023. Like, what is CSI doing in 2024? What's the big stuff? We're in the new facility. So it's a 12,000 square foot facility. We have IV sedation. Like, we're actually, we just ran the alpha class. So we're, we're dialed in. We got the states dialed in. We actually got North Carolina's state board to say yes, which was really interesting because they're usually very strict. So we're signing up all our North Carolinans now. So if you want, you can start the virtuals. The beauty of the way we structured is you can do the virtuals at home. So you could technically start now. And then if I fill up my February live patient course, well, then the people who are in the next group of IV sedation docs can come back in for the April group. And so on and so forth. So it's kind of first come, first serve, but we can sign up people and they can get started on the virtuals and start accruing CE and all of the above. And we have an awesome, awesome IV program. Like I think second to none on this one because we just do so much surgery at these courses. We have so much good live experience and it's not fillings and profi experience. It is surgery experience. And we just found a way to make it work. It's really a great program. And then outside of that, we're doing blocks and laterals and full arches. And me and Brisky do a bunch of pterygoids at the course and show people pterygoids, but we don't teach them. 
It's just we're expanding this thing and we have more courses than we've ever offered because we have a facility that can now hold it. And we have bigger class sizes than we've ever been able to have because we have, again, the facility that can hold it. And then just the new advent of all the technology. We have a crap ton of new tech and it's just fun to use it all and show different ways of implementing it. So we have the economic way of doing it and then we have the middle of the road way of doing it. And then we have the, okay, you're all in. You want the whole lab and photogametry and way of doing it. But we show people multiple ways to do things. So that way it's applicable when you go home. And then on top of that, it's just fun doing these podcasts, man. It's like we spoke at the Neodent Symposium. Me and Brisky talked about like blocks and laterals. It was a really cool event. And some of the lectures there are just phenomenal, phenomenal people and clinicians. So it was cool just to kind of be in that ecosystem and switch it up a little bit and talk clinical for a whole weekend in Miami. So yeah, things are good. Things are going really well, really well. I can't wait to see the building, man. It's got to be gorgeous. Like Brisky, you do our last question for this episode. Yeah. What is your favorite, absolute favorite thing about the new facility? It is the smell of oxygen inside the facility. It (laughs) smells like a casino. So (laughs) during our first event, his tanks were running empty. And I made this joke. He could see his face was just like, oh, my God, the tanks are running empty. There's a leak. And I just walked up. I was like, dude, it smells like a casino in here. Doesn't it smell amazing? He's like, Brisky, shut up, dude. (laughs) 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 He just didn't. He didn't like that joke at that particular time. (laughs) We had like five sedated patients. So E tanks are your small oxygen tanks. H tanks are the big boys. I have two freaking H tanks here and two H tanks of nitrous also. And they start to like run low. And I'm like, the hell is going on and we had just moved in so we were leaking oxygen everywhere mm. and first when brisky told me that i was like does it smell like cigarettes and red bull like what is going on <laughs> that's like my experience of a casino and then yeah we had called shine they plugged it up we got the h tanks replaced and all was well in the world <laughs> no i like the number of rooms and how close they are together and the amount of surgery rooms there are because there's a couple bigger rooms which is nice We can literally run eight chairs, nine chairs at once, which is pretty cool. So we have more room for spillover for patients to get them drugged up or get them anesthetic or kind of get things rolling and moving along for the next patient for the doctors to work on. Awesome. Well, 2024, awesome things, new facility. And I would say for everybody I know that's taken your guys' courses, just loved it. It is the coolest thing to hear, like how much people love your instruction and the guidance and the mentorship you guys provide. So coloradosurgicalinstitute.com and thank you guys and we'll talk to you guys next time. Cool. Peace. Thanks, Paul. Hey everybody, this is Dr. Dune from Colorado Surgical Institute. Just wanted to give you guys a shout out and let you know about the program. We have full arch surgeries, we have lateral sinus lifts, we have block grafting courses all done in one weekend with the whole digital workflow with photogametry units, scanners, 3D printers, milling, You name it, anything regarded to full arch, we cover in depth. We also have a PGCA course. What that is, it's the Postgraduate Clinical Accelerator course where we are gonna be covering wisdom teeth, single implants, and it can be complex single implants with vertical sinus lifts. We'll also be covering full arch extractions with ridge reduction, bone grafting, PRP, suturing, And we also will have a course on socket preservation. So if you guys are interested in any of those courses, please reach out to us at Colorado Surgical Institute. The code is 